welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team comes to the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And to reward you for all your time listening or reading to the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now let's have a quick look ahead at everything we'll be covering this week. First, how to use opioids. Second, PE response teams in the COVID era. Then, fluid management in sepsis, drug-induced arrhythmias, and finally, focused for shoulder dislocations. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the outstanding Alex Chen and Clay Smith. And then the first article for this week was titled Clinical Policy, Critical Issues Related to Opioids in Adult Patients Presenting to the Emergency Department, American College of Emergency Physicians Clinical Policies Subcommittee on Opioids, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Besides the obvious pandemic that's going on, we still can't forget about the epidemic that's in our midst. That is the opioid epidemic. But even though we spend a lot of time thinking about opioids, it's not always clear what we should actually be doing. Drug-related deaths are now more common than deaths due to motor vehicle crashes, and there are still a lot of those. So at the same time as not wanting to give too many opioids, we also still have to treat our patients in pain. This summary is the ASEP policy statement to address four key issues about opioid use in the emergency department. Now then, the first question. In adult patients experiencing opioid withdrawal, is emergency department-administered buprenorphine as effective for the management of opioid withdrawal compared with alternative management strategies? Treating opioid withdrawal with buprenorphine or methadone over non-opioid strategies such as alpha-2-adrenergic agonists and antiemetics is preferred. This is a level B recommendation. On top of that, as a level C recommendation, there should be preferential use of buprenorphine over methadone. A quick note on that is that buprenorphine prescribing requires special training and a DEAX waiver in the U.S. Plus, not to forget that using buprenorphine in a patient who is not yet in withdrawal may actually precipitate that withdrawal. As well, methadone is long-acting, and in patients who return to their usual opioid habits, its use can contribute to respiratory depression, and of course, it also prolongs the QT interval. Next, the second question. In adult patients experiencing an acute painful condition, do the benefits of prescribing a short course of opioids on discharge from the emergency department outweigh the potential harms? Here we have a level C recommendation to preferentially not prescribe opioids in favor of non-opioid analgesics. But when you do give opioids, the shortest acting at the lowest dose for the shortest amount of time is recommended. Not to forget that there are situations in which opioids are quite appropriate though, and this would include things like metastatic cancer pain and severe injuries. Next, the third question. In adult patients with an acute exacerbation of non-cancer chronic pain, do the benefits of prescribing a short course of opioids on discharge from the emergency department outweigh the potential harms? ASAP offers a level C recommendation that is essentially, well, if at all possible, just don't do it. And lastly, the fourth question. In adult patients with an acute episode of pain being discharged from the emergency department, do the harms of a short concomitant course of opioids and muscle relaxants or sedative hypnotics outweigh the benefits? Another level C recommendation to not routinely prescribe opioids with benzodiazepines, other muscle relaxants, or sedative hypnotics for patients with acute pain. 
Overdose deaths are greater when you combine them, and muscle relaxants really aren't a good pain management strategy anyways. So there you have it, in a spoonful, no big paradigm shift. Unless truly indicated, try to give as little opioids as possible, and that's the best recommendation. And now the second article titled Diagnosis and Treatment of Pulmonary Embolism During the COVID-19 Pandemic, a position paper from the National PE Response Team Consortium out of the Journal of Chest. Pulmonary embolism response teams can help expedite PE management and decision-making in an evidence-based manner. The question is what role should these teams play in this COVID-19 era? The answer, of course, is that they should still largely do the same thing, but we have a few points on that from a consensus statement about their use. To start, COVID-19 testing should be done early, and the assumption of positive should be default until tests come back. And then safety precautions should be appropriate for that in mind. So PE response teams can still positively impact care, helping with the diagnosis and management. When diagnosing, try to correlate the extent of disease you see on imaging in front of you with the patient that you have in front of you as well. If the patient is worse than what you see, then consider a CTPA, with a low threshold in these COVID-19 patients who we know to be coagulopathic. Appropriate patients may be treated as outpatients if they meet all the criteria, of course. But keep in mind that these are patients with a viral pneumonia and a PE, so they should have very close follow-up. And that follow-up should be virtual if possible. But if things like right ventricular dysfunction needs to be reassessed, then of course you're going to have to bring them in. Thrombolysis is still on the table and may even be preferred to more invasive interventions, especially if those interventions require a transfer because they have to be done elsewhere. But transfers and those procedure decisions should be made on a case-by-case basis. Included in this paper was a nice algorithm to help with PE decision-making in the COVID era and is available at our blog. I advise that you check it out because it's pretty nice. So in a spoonful, pulmonary embolism response teams have not been rendered obsolete by the pandemic. And indeed, you might want to lean on them even more given the increase in complexity. Next, we have the third article titled The Effect of Early Balanced Crystalloids Before ICU Admission on Sepsis Outcomes out of the Journal Chest. They might all just look like water, but your choice of fluids can actually make a difference. The SMART trial found that balanced crystalloids in critically ill patients reduced the major adverse kidney events, and this benefit appeared to be even greater in sepsis patients. For the first seven months of the SMART study, the choice of fluids was made when the patient got to the ICU. But for the last 15 months of the study, the choice was made instead in the emergency department. Does making that choice earlier make a difference in critically ill patients? This was a secondary analysis of the SMART study data comparing volume resuscitation with normal saline against balanced crystalloids. In this case, what was used was Ringer's lactate or plasmolite, focusing on patients with sepsis. For the 367 patients with the fluid choice made in the ICU, there was no mortality benefit to balanced crystalloids. However, if that choice was made earlier in the emergency department, then there was a mortality benefit to balanced fluids. For a 24.9% mortality with balanced, compared to 30.6% with normal saline, that's an odds ratio of 0.68. Now then, this was not the primary outcome of the original study, though, and this is just a subgroup analysis. But it's still validating and an interesting data point. So in a spoonful, starting balanced crystalloids fluids instead of using normal saline while still in the emergency department as opposed to being in the ICU may have a mortality benefit for critically ill patients with sepsis. Next, the fourth article titled Drug-Induced Arrhythmias, a Scientific Statement from the American Heart Association 
out of the Journal of Circulation. Cardiac arrhythmias can be pretty worst case as far as medication side effects go, and they're pretty common on top of that. It's quite ingrained in us to look out for the almighty tossade point from a prolonged QT interval, but the extent of the arrhythmias that can be caused by medications does not stop there. The list of possible culprits for various arrhythmias is long, like very long, like too long for me to read out for you here on the podcast. So for this, I'd like to refer you to our blog or for the original article so you can jog your memory about which drugs might cause what as sort of a reference from the future. And also kind of doing it both ways, considering when you have a patient who comes in who's critically ill, then seeing what's on their med list. And with that, we'll go on to the fifth article titled Musculoskeletal Ultrasonography to Diagnose Dislocated Shoulders, a Prospective Cohort out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It is not so uncommon for a patient to present with a shoulder dislocation to the ER, but how easy it is to deal with them can be quite variable. For some, it's just a quick pop and it's back in, while others, it can be rather time-consuming. And something that can hold you up and certainly extend the time that you have to deal with this patient is trying to get that patient back and forth from the x-ray. So if only there was another way. And there is. With POCUS, everybody. This was a multi-center prospective observational study of 65 patients over 18 years old with a suspicion of shoulder dislocation and using the posterior ultrasound approach to evaluate them. All POCUS exams in the study were done by a fellowship-trained or in-training faculty. The sensitivity for posterior shoulder dislocation identified by POCUS was 100%, and so was the specificity. And on top of being 100% sensitive and specific, It was 43 minutes faster than getting an x-ray and took only a median of 19 seconds to perform. From the 65 patients, 25 of them at 38% had fractures identified on x-ray. Unfortunately, POCUS didn't do as well, only identifying about half of those fractures. And of those fractures missed, there was only one non-Hillsax Bankart fracture. And of those fractures missed, there was only one non-Hillsax Bankart fracture. So the sensitivity for POCUS to identify a non-Hillsax-Bankart fracture was then 92% with a specificity of 100%. So while this was only one patient in this study, it still could lead to significant morbidity if missed. And even for Hillsax-Bankart fractures, while it doesn't change anything in the acute management, it's still important for follow-up and the risk of reoccurrence or morbidity. To see a few pictures of exactly how these POCUS exams were conducted and the images you'd expect to see, those can be found at our blog. Unfortunately, describing them here would likely be sort of unfruitful. So maybe this technique won't cut it to replace x-rays altogether, but it could certainly still have its uses, like verifying that your reduction was successful, or for patients with frequent dislocations that aren't traumatic that might not have gotten an x-ray anyways. In a spoonful, the posterior ultrasound approach to identifying shoulder dislocations was 100% sensitive and specific for shoulder dislocation, and was faster than x-ray by 43 minutes. However, at a sensitivity of only 92%, there's still a risk of missing non-Hillsax-Bankart fractures, and so it may not be up for replacing x-rays completely. Now then, that's all the articles from last week. Let's do a quick wrap-up of everything we learned today. First, continue to keep opioids to a minimum in the emergency department unless properly indicated. Next, pulmonary embolism response teams have not yet been rendered obsolete by COVID-19, so if you've got one, then call on it. 
Third, in a secondary analysis, there is evidence of a mortality benefit to giving balanced crystallite fluids to septic patients in the emergency department before they make it to the ICU. After that, drugs mess with your heart. Check out our blog to see which ones do so in which way. And lastly, from the fifth article, posterior ultrasound approach to identify shoulder dislocation has perfect sensitivity and specificity, but could miss some significant fractures, so may have to be used selectively still. And that's it. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.